I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin with verse 5. Thank you for standing in honor of the opening of the book. That was a precedent first set back in Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra the scribe opened the book of the law and people just stood up in honor of the, the scroll actually being opened, the book of the law. Well, this is a passage that you're familiar with. At least, uh, you know, verses 9 through uh, 13 here. It's what we call the Lord's Prayer. Most of your Bibles probably have this section referred to as the model prayer. And I think that's a better name. I think the Lord's Prayer is found in John chapter 17, the prayer that Jesus prayed when he was putting these principles into his prayer. This is a model prayer. And beginning with the verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. When you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions. By the way, many have let this model prayer be that. Don't use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father in heaven knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For Then he adds in verse 14 and 15, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive yours. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this day on the importance of what we're doing even in this very moment. The importance of prayer. I pray that for those who might have grown weary in their prayer life, or neglectful, or doubtful, that your Spirit would reignite in us a passion for prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kingdom praying revived hearts. There was a small part of me that said, you know, as we approach revival, maybe I perhaps need to pull away from our study of Matthew's gospel and the need for noble living in a needy world. Pull away from Matthew's gospel, find one of those revival passages and preach on our need for revival so that everyone would understand how important it is to be here for revival. And the Lord, through His Spirit, I believe, confirmed in my heart and in my spirit that it's not by accident that we find ourselves looking at the model prayer one week before our scheduled fall revival. If there is a key to revived hearts, and I'm seeking God for revived hearts, I know that John Reed has the gift of evangelism, but I also know that God uses him like he does most gifted evangelists to revive the church with a new heart for the world, to, to kind of blow off the dust that's settled on our hearts when we've grown weary and, and we've grown cold toward the things of God. 
So I believe if we're going to experience revived hearts and hearts that can stay revived, then we need to experience kingdom praying as a church. We've often failed to say, Lord, like the disciples did, Lord, teach us how to pray. Heard about a family that invited the pastor's family to her home. A lady invited the pastor's family to her home for lunch. She was kind of hoping that they would be a witness to her husband because her husband didn't attend church that often. And so she invited the pastor's family over to lunch. The pastor's family comes in and the meal is about to be served. Everything smells good, looks good. It's going to be a great lunch that day. And the lady wanted to convince the pastor that she was very spiritual and that she had taught her kids right. So she looked at her little boy and said, Would you uh, please say, they'll say his name was Johnny. Johnny, would you please say the blessing for us? Johnny looked at her real confused. The blessing? She said, Pray, will you pray for us? Pray and, and thank God for the food. And he looked at her and he said, Well, how do I how do I pray? She said, You know, Johnny, pray that prayer that you've heard mommy pray. You pray the prayer you've you've heard mommy pray. And about that time, Johnny, looking a little bit of confused, he bowed his head and he said, Dear Lord, why did I invite the preacher's family over this week? <laughs> when I had so much else to do. What are the prayers that we're being taught? In Luke chapter 11, where we see kind of a a paraphrase of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke tells us that Jesus used the model prayer because His disciples had asked Him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Interestingly, the disciples didn't say, teach us how to preach, teach us how to heal people, teach us how to debate with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. They didn't say, Lord Jesus, teach us how. Some of you have got some relatives that prayed this. Teach us how to turn water into wine. They, they didn't, didn't say that. They didn't say, teach us how to exercise demons. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And I believe it's because they saw that the key to the power in the life of Jesus himself was his prayer life. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, it says, Being a great while before day, Jesus rose up and He went out to a solitary place. And there He prayed. We also learned that that was His habit in Luke chapter 5 and verse 16, where it says that Jesus often withdrew to the lonely places so He could spend some time in prayer. The disciples thought, you know, he is always at his best around people when he finds time away from people so he can be alone with the Father and pray. And so this is a model prayer, and let's emphasize it's not a magical formula that we're reading here. So that we can learn from the model to pray for kingdom impact and pray for revived hearts. Lord, teach us to pray. How do we pray? I'm just going to give you three quick principles this morning from this passage of Scripture that I believe shows us the importance of prayer when it comes to kingdom praying and revived hearts. And the first one is this, the importance of personal prayer. I want you to see in this text, as we lead into this model prayer, the importance of personal 
prayer. This is very secret, very intimate prayer, private prayer that's taking place as Jesus describes in the beginning the importance of not being like the hypocrites in verse 5. He's saying, don't be like those who are two-faced that always want to pray these religious prayers in front of people. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. And He says, assuredly, I tell you, they have their reward. Their reward is the applause of man. He says, they, they want to sound eloquent. They want to sound religious. They want to sound pious. And so they're out there verbalizing these beautiful prayers. But you, when you pray, go into your room. When you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Hank Hanegraaff, and I'll refer to his book in a moment, The Prayer of Jesus, says the secret to prayer is secret prayer. Now Jesus is not saying anything against corporate prayer, but he's saying if our prayers are going to be meaningful, and, and our prayers are going to be important that we pray in, in a public setting, and the lives that we live are going to reveal that we mean what we're praying publicly, then the secret to prayer is going to be our secret prayer life. I've said before, some of you have heard me talk about this, my golf game is awful. Thank you. <laughs> I reveal whenever I play golf that I don't play golf much. My golf game is awful, and I would not want to be like one of these professional golfers where the cameras actually followed me around playing golf. The only thing I count successful after a day playing golf is if I come home with more golf balls than I left with. And that's usually because when I hit mine in the bushes, I find six others because everybody else was too lazy to look for theirs. But my golf game is awful. One thing that I have learned whenever I watch golf on TV is that these guys who do really well in the public eye spend a lot more time playing golf with no eyes on them. They spend time driving, they spend time putting, they spend time chipping. These young guys that are coming along today, like this, this kid Rory McIlroy, who, it's hard to say five times real fast, isn't it? A kid like that comes along and he plays golf and you just go, wow. And then you find out that his exercise and his practice regimen is something that we couldn't conceive of. He spends so much more times, even though he's big time in the public eye, he spends so much more time in private putting and chipping and driving than he ever does in public. And so many times as Christians, we aren't victorious in the public eye because we're not victorious in private. We're not practicing a prayer life when we're outside of the public arena. We pray because we're at church. We pray because it's mealtime at home. And if we're courageous enough, we pray at mealtime in a restaurant, which is all important and all is good. But how is your secret prayer life? You ever seen these guys selling exercise equipment on TV? I know um, Chuck Norris, you know, that guy who when he does push-ups, he doesn't really push himself up, he pushes the earth away from him. Chuck Norris, you know, he's, he's exactly 40 years I'm sorry, exactly 30 years to the day older than me. I, I think we have a lot in common, except for he's 30 years older. But Chuck Norris, you know, and all these other folks that sell this exercise equipment, and you look at them, and, and you hear something like this, 10 minutes a day on this machine. 
Ten minutes, you buy this machine, ten minutes a day and you can look like me. Not true. These folks get paid to work out all the time. Some of you didn't know that. You've got, you've got a machine somewhere that's just become a laundry rack because it didn't work ten minutes a day. No, they're working out all the time. They work out a little bit on the commercial in public, but they're working out all the time. How's your prayer life behind the scenes? We're to pray all the time. Now, prayer must then become its own reward. We've got to enjoy spending time with God, not just so that God will answer those prayers, but because spending time alone with God is its own reward. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I go to my parents and say, I have some needs, or especially if I go and say, Kent and Karis have some needs, they will be concerned and they'll want to help meet those needs. But you know my parents would appreciate it a lot more if I say, I don't need anything, I just want to hang out. I'm just coming over to your house, not because the ball game's on and we don't get that channel. <laughs> Anybody else guilty? Not just because the ball game's on and we don't get that channel, I'm just coming over to your house to hang out. Parents and grandparents appreciate that. How much more does our Heavenly Father love it when we just come to Him in prayer and say, Lord, it's not today, not at this moment. It's not because of my heavy heart and all these things that I need from You. Lord, I just want to spend time with You. See, we wait till we, wait till we have need. We wait till we're asking Him for something. And there's a place for that, and we'll get to that in a moment. But That secret prayer, that time alone with God becomes more valuable when we just simply want to spend time in the presence of God. I mentioned Hank Hanegraaff's book on page 11. By the way, if you're interested in really doing a good study of the Lord's Prayer, it's a small book. He kind of wrote it into response to the popularity of the book called The Prayer of Jabez. There's an interpretive rule in the Old Testament. Whenever you're studying an Old Testament passage, as a New Testament believer, you need to look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. You need to cross over to the New Testament and say, does the New Testament expound on this? Does it modify it? And so when you read something like the prayer of Jabez or any other prayer, you need to say, how does the Lord's Prayer or how does the model prayer that Jesus taught us modify or qualify this? Now, you didn't ask for that Bible lesson this morning, but Hank Hanegraaff wrote a wonderful book called The Prayer of Jesus that I would encourage everybody who's serious about learning how to apply these principles, go out, get you a little copy of this, get it off the Internet, read it on your Kindle. It's a great book, but he quotes Calvin Miller, a great theologian, who says, the absence of inwardness is the lost freedom we trade for addictions. It's interesting, isn't it? Pascal was right. There is a God-shaped void or a God-shaped vacuum in our lives that only God can fill. When God fills our inner vacuum with the Holy Spirit, life works. When God does not fill the vacuum... A host of consuming appetites swarm through our better intentions. Miller adds, all adds up to a kind of powerlessness which always results from living too far from the grand enabler. When we will not provide a place for the direction of the indwelling Christ, all that is left is the frenzied agenda of our hassled discipleship. Let me say that again for those of us who are trying so hard to get all of this right in the Christian life. When we will not provide a place for the direction of the indwelling Christ, all that is left is the frenzied agenda of discipleship. 
The sad thing about all this is that true discipleship can never be frenzied, for it emulates its master and turns from the turbulent to embrace a steady devotion and a silent adoration. I believe what Calvin Miller is saying is when we're spending time praying, spending time in secret in God's presence, those things that we're working so hard to do just begin to come natural to us. It just becomes the overflow of our time we have spent in prayer with our Lord. Then we must understand the the nature of this personal relationship, the importance of personal prayer. It makes us ask the question, why are we trying to sound so religious with our prayer life? Look at verses 8 and 9. Therefore do not be like them, speaking of the hypocrites, putting on a show out there, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Why are you trying to impress people with this religious-sounding prayer? And it happens today as much as it did then. You can walk into churches all over the country today, and somebody stands up in a beautiful robe with a collar on, and they say, Our God. Who is he talking to? Or they maybe even pray in Latin. We don't understand it. Something natural about a personal relationship. He says, so in this matter, pray like this. Our Father... And he's not saying memorize this. It's it's a great prayer to memorize so you learn the model, but he's not saying memorize this and use it to recite as a magical formula. As a matter of fact, he's already said the opposite. But he's saying, here's you an outline. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. We're praying to our Father. See, the religious Jews struggled with the concept of Father. Now, Isaiah 9, 6 it points out Jesus was going to make that even more real to us when it prophesied that when Messiah came, He would be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. He would be someone who would bring the peace of God and a personal relationship with the Father into our lives. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, Paul says that the, what the Gospel has offered us is not a fearful spirit of religious bondage where we pray because we have to or else, It's not a fearful spirit of religious bondage, but he says the spirit of adoption so we can cry out, Abba, Father. The word Abba is the intimate name. Some say it's kind of like the word Daddy, but it's the intimate name they would use for Father to say, you're my personal Father, Abba, Daddy. So he says, go to your Father like you would your earthly Father. The one that He loves you and wants what's best for you. You say, oh, but pastor, I'm just a human being who is filled with sin and and evil thoughts and and there's no way I could go before the Father. How can I do that? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who cannot identify with the feelings of our infirmities, our weaknesses, our sins, right? But one who in every way was tempted like we are, yet without sin. So let us come boldly into the throne room of grace where we can find mercy and grace. Thank God for His grace. We couldn't approach Him apart from grace. But because He loves us, because He gave His life for us, we sang about it earlier, because the veil was torn from top to bottom that separated us from the holy presence of God, we can now walk into His presence and say, Abba, Father, Daddy, I have a need. Can you help me? And He assures us we will find mercy and grace. That tells us that we don't even have to deserve it. 
Aren't you glad that God doesn't say, I told you so, when we go to Him in prayer? But He shows mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Maybe it's just a need of wisdom. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask it of God, who gives to all men liberally or generously without reproach. That means without finding fault. That means when we have those moments where we need to come into our Father's presence, we don't have to worry about our Father saying, you got yourself into this mess, you get yourself out. There have been so many times, so many areas in my life where I thought, well, I should have enough sense not to have to uh, be in this situation, so I'm not going to go and ask for God's help because then I have to admit how, how stupid I am. God doesn't find fault. God doesn't reproach. He says, I'm glad you came to me. It's about time. It's personal. This inspires faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith... It is impossible to please God for those who come to God must come believing that He exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. So we come believing. We used an acrostic for those who came in and prayed. I made an acrostic available that was uh, used the word facts, F-A-C-T-S. Some of you have heard of acts before in your prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Facts just puts an F in front of it. Faith, we come professing our faith in Him, believing that He is our Father and loves us dearly. And we move from faith into adoring Him, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It's another great outline like the one we're looking at for prayer. So the importance of personal prayer. Secondly, I want us to move in, into the area of purposeful prayer and see the importance of praying on purpose. Look at verse 10, as we move through this prayer that Jesus is praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's praying a prayer that almost sounds like the way the book of Revelation is kind of wrapped up as Revelation describes the coming kingdom, the visual kingdom of God that's going to be established on the earth when Jesus comes again. And it kind of ends with this prayer, even so, come. And most of us are in the same boat from time to time. We, we read about what things are going to be like when Jesus comes back, and we say, even so, come Lord Jesus, we're ready to see your visual kingdom on earth. But remember, the Sermon on the Mount is reminding us how to live out kingdom principles and God's kingdom agenda on earth as it is in heaven. And so we learn to pray that the will of God might be displayed in us even now. So the context reveals more to this prayer than the visual appearing of God's perfect government on earth one day. But it's saying, let the kingdom agenda begin now. Let it begin here. Let it begin in me, like we were singing a moment ago. Build your kingdom here. Lord, you start in me. That's a prayer of nobility. So God's will is to take place through us. We begin praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. And do it in and through us. So we offer ourselves. Romans 12 says, I urge you, I beg you, Give your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable before Him. This is your reasonable act of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So in our prayer life, we're saying, Lord, renew your mind so that you're building your kingdom in me. And this is the will of God, so that we can discover the will of God, which is perfect and, and acceptable and pleasing unto Him. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have before Him. 
If we ask according to His will, we know that He hears us, and we know that we'll have what we ask Him for. When we're praying according to the will of God. And that doesn't mean a faithless tag at the end of the prayer, which often we pray in our hearts as kind of an excuse for not expecting God to do anything, right? We pray for something that would be just an outstanding move out of work of God, and then at the end of it we say, Lord, if that be your will. And that's not a bad prayer to pray unless you pray it. And in your heart you're really saying, because Lord, I really don't expect you to do anything, so I want to be able to say, when, when you don't do anything, Lord, I want to be able to say that it's not been your will. Now, what this is talking about is praying with knowledge according to the will of God, going before the Lord in prayer with the Word of God, letting the Holy Spirit speak the truth of God into your hearts and understanding His will, and then praying His will for your life. So he demonstrates this, that it would include praying for basic needs. Give us this day our daily bread. That's the will of God. Physical needs, daily bread. It's learning to say with Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, Be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be, be made known to God. And then the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. He says, don't be a worry wart. Pray for those needs. Put it before him. And verse 19 of the same chapter, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. And, and so we learn to pray. It's God's will for us to pray for the basic sustenance of life. And then, more importantly, to move toward our spiritual needs. We're praying the will of God when we're praying for our spiritual needs. We know this is God's will, that you... Lead us not into temptation, or that you would forgive us, going back to verse 12, our debts, our sins, our trespasses, where we've crossed the line. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have sinned against us. That's praying for forgiveness, 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, call it what it is, agree with God about it, then He's faithful and just to forgive us. So we pray for cleansing and, and we pray for forgiveness as we forgive others, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. But we also not only pray for forgiveness, but we pray for deliverance so that we don't keep on getting back into what it was we were having to ask for forgiveness of. Forgiveness from sin's penalty, yes, but also deliverance from sin's power lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the evil one, more literally says there, Listen to how David prays this and practices this in his prayer in Psalm 19, verses 12 through 14. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. David was saying, hey, there are those sins in my life that take place because I didn't see it coming. Temptation came. I lost my cool. I was guilty of lust. Whatever it was, he fell into it and he said, Lord, those secret faults, those things that I happened upon, Lord, please forgive those, but also deliver me from presumptuous sins. Those things that I knew, were, I saw the rebellion in my heart ahead of time, and I still chose to sin. He says, keep your servant back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I will be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Pray for forgiveness, but pray for deliverance. Prayer is the key to staying close and clean 
and resisting the enemy. 1 Peter chapter 5, 9, most of you know verse 8, your adversary, the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking who may, may devour. Verse 9 says, resist him. How do we resist him? In prayer. Steadfast, he says, in the faith, that's where we started a moment ago, faith that we are children of God. Heirs, Abba Father. So we're to resist the devil, James 4, 7 says, and he will flee from us. We do that with our prayer life and avoid pitfalls by walking with Jesus. I think that's why 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Now that one's hard, isn't it? Pray without ceasing. Can I really drive down the road, kind of close my eyes and pray? If I'm taking an exam at school, can I stop and pray? Well, that's a bad example. Yes, you can. You probably pray all through those exams, right? Uh, when I'm at work and I'm running heavy machinery, can I pray? It's not so much of being long in prayer as it is not going long without prayer. That we as Christians aren't talking to ourselves anymore. We're walking in harmony with the Spirit of God and talking with God throughout the day. And it provides an awareness of His presence. And when we're aware of His presence, we're living a life on purpose. I mean... Do we not behave better when we're children when we know our parents are watching? I mean, a lot of those things that happened that shouldn't have happened happened when the parents weren't watching. That's why you have two or three or four kids standing before you going, all right, what happened? What happened? Tell me what happened. No, did you hit her? Did you hit her? What happened? How did it happen? Because when we're in their presence, they're not likely to do it. When we are aware of God's presence in our life, it makes the deliverance from temptation so much easier. And it's our prayer life that causes us to live with awareness of His presence. So that's purposeful prayer. Praying that God's kingdom agenda be manifest in us in the way that He's not only meeting our basic needs, but the way He's delivering us from temptation, giving us victory. And finally, I want you to see the importance this morning of the purity of prayer. The purity of prayer. And when I speak of purity here, I'm primarily speaking of the purity of motives. Am I really praying all of this for God's glory? And so he says, Deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom. Lord, it's all about your kingdom, not building my own kingdom. Your kingdom. It's all about your power, not that I might be glorified for what a powerful Christian I am. Your power. And God, this is all for your glory. So that the, the victories you gain in my life aren't for me to be praised for being such a wonderful Christian, but for you to be praised for being such a wonderful God. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Lord, it's all about you anyway. And then what, what is the condition of the heart of the one who is praying? Purity of motive means we're willing to forgive others for those things we're asking forgiveness of. Verse 14. You forgive men their trespasses, your Father will also forgive you. Now, now here's the good news. You might be saying, well, then my motives are not right, so I better not spend any time in prayer. The wonderful thing about prayer is, once we begin to pray, God begins to deal with our motives. You might even pray a prayer like Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxiety. See if there's any wicked way in me. 
and lead me in the way everlasting. If you begin to pray, you kneel down by your bedside, you come to this altar and you say, Lord, if there's any impure motives in my heart, reveal that to me. God will show you what they are. God will begin to reveal the impurities in your heart and in your life that distract you from His kingdom agenda. Especially if you're spending time in the Word as you pray. By purity of motive. Just ask yourself the question, why am I asking this of the Lord? The couples from time to time will call on me for counseling, marital counseling. We'll get together and meet. Sometimes if it's just if it's it's a process that involves more professional help or people with expertise um, in clinical psychology or something like that, I might refer. But a lot of times in the first counseling session, I can determine whether or not this marriage is going to work out. The first counseling session, how can you tell? Because if a couple comes and meets with me and I say, listen, is it your heart's desire to please God no matter what? What, what, you know, whatever happens in the relationship, whoever gets their way, what, is it your desire to be in the middle of God's will and to please Him no matter what? If they say, if both of them say, yes, I want to be right with God, then there's nothing they can't overcome in order to be right with each other. But if either or both will not come to the place where they want to do God's will, then I can't promise a lot of help for their relationship with one another. See, the motive has to be, I want to please God no matter what. When I come to my prayer life, the purity of my prayer is to say, Lord, I want to do Your will no matter what. And God is saying, listen then, because my will is that you are in right relationship with me and in right relationship with others. If you have no desire to be in right relationship with others, guess what? You're not going to get real with me. So the purity of prayer is affected by our relationships. Our willingness to forgive others, those things we're asking for forgiveness of, that tells us that it's not all about us. It's about what God wants to do in our lives. But if you do not forgive men their transgressions or trespasses, in verse 15 he says, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The impurity of our motives impacts whether or not God is really going to answer us. Now we know God is omniscient and He knows every word and every thought that everyone ever has. What does he mean, I won't hear? It means he's, he's not listening until you're ready to listen and do what he wants to do in your life. There's that warning even in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 our, in our men's Bible study. We've been looking at this recently. Husbands, likewise dwell with your wives with understanding or in an understanding way, giving honor to them. And then he goes on to say, live this way with your wife so that your prayers will not be hindered. God says, you're coming to me and your wife can't even approach you. God doesn't literally say talk to the hand, but you know what I'm saying. Better dwell with your wife in an understanding way. There are a lot of men here who probably are desirous of a powerful prayer life, and God says, you better make things right with your wife. Or you're headed down a path of spiritual defeat. You're loving me. You need to be loving her. It works both ways. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. See, when our motives are pure, and we begin to pray with pure motives, 
saying, Lord, I want to be right with you and I want to be right with people. And we bring that purposeful prayer in that context and we're praying with this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then it becomes a powerful thing. Then, and only then, can we begin to quote verses like Ephesians 3.20, where it says, God can do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or even think. Or Jeremiah 33.3, where he says, Call on me and I'll show you great and mighty things. When our motives are pure, we understand the importance of the purity of our prayer. And we're praying according to the purposes of God. Guided by His principles. And we're enjoying a personal relationship with God. Then He will begin to revive our hearts and build His kingdom in my life and in your life. Because then we're living for His glory. For His kingdom and by His power. That's where I want to be. And I can't say I've arrived yet, but the Lord is teaching me and He's showing me what He wants me to accomplish or what He wants to accomplish better in me (laughs) through prayer. Would you bow your heads with me right now?